0: Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television. Currently all-in on HBO's Watchmen, which premiered its first episode. It's summer and we're running out of ice on October 20th. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wigler, your host here on series regular, though I think I might need to start thinking up an alias. Any suggestions, Antonio Mazzaro?
1: How about the Wigmaker's Son?
0: The Wigmaker's Son is not bad. I was thinking Captain Wombat, though that may go over some (laughs) people's heads. Just cubes of wisdom that I would be throwing out there into the universe. Anything for yourself? I like the Wigmaker's Son for myself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe Bizarro would be good for me because yeah. it's sort of like my last name. Maybe that's too obvious. I don't know. Do you have any suggestions for me? No,
0: Captain Bizarro is good. I think the wig maker's son and Captain Bizarro is the way to go here. As we were talking about Watchmen, we were talking about a fleet of characters with alter egos, so we should join them in kind. First of all, Antonio, you are new to the ears of the people who are listening to series regular. This is very exciting because you are not new to my ears by any stretch of the imagination. And if we've got any listeners coming coming our way from post-show recap. Certainly not new to them as well, but Antonio is going to be my wingman, not my wigman, here on the Watchmen coverage on series regular, all nine episodes of the first season of Watchmen, potentially the only season of Watchmen, according to Damon Lindelof. I'm sure we will talk about that a little bit here. Antonio, you're gonna be the guy, and this is gonna be
1: incredibly fun. I'm excited, it's, it's me and you. Can I be Night Owl if you're at Rorschach?
0: <laughs> I don't know that I wanna be Rorschach. I think that it's not so <laughs> so great to be Rorschach anymore if it you ever was okay. I don't know if it was ever okay to be Rorschach, uh, but it's certainly pretty bad now. Uh, but Antonio, we'll we'll dig into your backstory. We'll dig into some of my backstory too for anybody who is listening to Series Regular for the first time. But just to set the stage for what it is we are doing here, this is going to be your weekly destination for all things Watchmen. We are coming your way with a podcast each and every week after the episode. We're going to break down each episode of this new Drama from Damon Lindelof and Friends based on Alan Moore and Dave Gibbon's seminal graphic novel of the same name, clearly dealing with very different subject matter or at least telling a different story than what was told in the comic book. You're probably advised to read the graphic novel as you may have just seen from watching the series premiere. We're certainly going to be getting into full spoilers in just a few moments from the series premiere specifically. So if you have not watched it yet, go do that fix that before you listen any further but I would also say that we are going to feel like uh, we can go full tilt spoilers on the graphic novel as well because I think a lot of that will inform our analysis of Watchmen moving forward so either read the graphic novel or you're signing on and saying that you don't mind knowing what happens in the graphic novel by listening further but the purposes of this podcast we're going to be planting flags and theories along the way we're calling out Easter eggs to the comic books we're talking about themes that seem to be emerging across the way here on Watchmen We'll even be bringing in interviews whenever possible. We have one that we will be drawing upon very soon, which is a very fun interview. Certainly one that I was really excited to do. So that's going to be the podcast here for this first podcast. We're going to play a little bit of getting to know you, uh, so that you get to know Antonio and I. If you do not know us already, we're going to flash our badges, so to speak. Try and get a uh, make sure no blood spills on our badges as we present our credentials, uh, and we're going to do our best to lay the bedrock for what the what the squid it is you just saw here on Watchmen. Uh, so I guess first. Order of business. Hopefully you know who I am. Hopefully you've been listening to series regular for a little bit. In case this is your first episode, hi I'm Josh. I'm Josh Wigler. I cover genre television for the Hollywood Reporter. Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Westworld, Stranger Things, Mr. Robot, if it's, if it's highly nerdy, it's very likely that I am I am writing about it uh, and podcasting about it as well. We launched Series Regular with Game of Thrones for the final season of Game of Thrones, and we've been producing steady content ever since, uh, covering a wide range of shows. Series Regular is now evolving to a point where we are going to be digging much deeper into specific shows, one specific show at a time. And so for the next chunk of time, it is going to be Watchmen. I've been podcasting for a while, uh, Beyond the scope of THR, you may be used to hearing my voice over at Post Show Recaps, and you may be used to hearing me in conjunction with Antonio here, because uh, we have podcasted. This is our first Hollywood Reporter official podcast together, Antonio. How many hours would you guess you and I have spent on a microphone together?
1: Oh, my. Uh, on a microphone together? Does that include the karaoke songs we've sung together? Because I don't <laughs> know if we've ever really done that. To, but... to
0: get to sing our ways out of hell?
1: Exactly. We have whatever
0: existential uh, (laughs) purgatory we've been in. Yes.
1: Yeah, Simon and Josh Funkel. That was a thing that happened. (laughs) Uh, We've definitely podcasted for hundreds, if not over a thousand hours at this point uh, about a lot of these shows that you've talked about, the genre TV shows that fit into uh, the stuff that you write about here at THR. But I think most pertinent for what we're going to do here with Watchmen, Josh, we spent a lot of time podcasting about Damon Lindelof's previous fantastic show, The Leftovers.
0: Yes, we, t- we talked a ton about Damon Lindelof's The Leftovers. We've podcasted about, uh, I wish we could say each and every episode. I believe we missed Gladys is the big glaring hole in our oh. Leftovers catalog, We'll have to go back
1: and do that Yeah, we'll point. have
0: to throw a stone at that at some point in time. But Antonio and I talked about every single episode of The Leftovers. Damon Lindelof, I think uh, widely known for Lost. And of course, that is a show that is very near and dear to my heart that I continue to podcast about to this day over at Post Show Recaps on the Down the Hatch podcast. If you're a Lost fan, I highly recommend you check it out. But Antonio and I, as far as it pertains to what Lindelof was working on uh, before he came over to Watchmen, before he made the choice to explore this world that was set out uh, so brilliantly by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons in the late 1980s, Antonio and I have thoroughly covered that universe, The Leftovers. So I think that both of us probably come to this project feeling, uh, at least I'll speak for myself, Antonio, please feel free to disagree, primarily... It's the the works of Damon Lindelof that that has me the most excited about Watchmen. I love the graphic novel. I've read the graphic novel multiple times uh, as is a common story for for men of my age, mid-30s. You you go away from comic books for a while. You get roped back into comic books around college. Uh, Watchmen is often a gateway drug for that or as part of the, uh, it's on the platter of, okay, you're getting back into comics. Here's some Preacher. Here's some Watchmen. Uh, That was basically the order for me. So my encounter with Watchmen is uh, my early 20s, late teens, and I love the work, but it's it's really Damon Lindelof's storytelling and the incredible talent that he has assembled over the course of his career uh, for his many different projects, for his two TV shows that he was the showrunner of, and now here for Watchmen. That really gets me so invested in the way that he tells his stories and the themes that he seems to really be compelled to explore. So that really is, is the thing that I'm most excited about here with Watchmen is Where does this man who just absolutely thoroughly killed it on the leftovers go
1: from here? That's what it is for me too, and I'm sure the interview that you're going to play a little bit of here in just a moment uh, that you did with Damon Lindelof, where he talks about what drew him to the project or his connection to this material. Uh, it is one of those situations where you hear somebody that you love, like Damon Lindelof, whose works that you have analyzed or, or in my case, that we podcasted about, that that we really talked about extensively, and you think about his worldview and the way he lenses certain issues, the way he lenses just the the character themes that he deals with. uh, and their interpersonal struggles. And then you think about casting that against the backdrop of a world in which the events of the graphic novel of Watchmen have occurred, but it's the modern world. So that is fascinating to think about. If you were actually going to write what would ultimately be like a Watchmen sequel, not necessarily... With all the same characters and maybe not in the immediate aftermath but with a significant time jump what does the world actually look like did Vite's plan succeed all of these questions that as a fan of the graphic novel you would ask yourself Damon Lindelof is the one who's going to get to address them. And you put those two things together. For me, it's very exciting as well. So it isn't just the name, uh, the brand Watchmen, and it isn't certainly just the Lindelof brand. It is that crazy combination of the two. It's the sort of thing when you're getting pulled back into things. If you said, let's spin a wheel and, and pick a great outcome. Let's put two things together that I would love to see. These are definitely two things I would put together and say, I would really love to see what that would look like. And Josh, we get to see what it looks like and we get to talk about it.
0: Yeah, I remember when the leftovers ended and you and I were like, whatever Damon Lindelof wants to do next, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm very curious to see what he wants to do next. And I think Watchmen, I don't remember the exact timeline of when leftovers ended and then Watchmen was at least uh, spoken about when the news started to break that or the rumors even that this was, a, this was a twinkle in the eye. But I think both you and I were kind of like, oh, really? This is what this is what you want to do. Like I think a little scared. <laughs> I think a little bit frightened uh, that this is you know you, you've got you've got all of your options on the table and you're you're going to touch this thorny bush, right? Uh, you know because this is a you know Watchmen. If you know anything about the comic books history, then you know that Alan Moore, one of the co-creators, the writer of Watchmen, very famously wants no part of uh, Watchmen outside of the graphic novel, and indeed not only wants no part of it, but but finds it unethical that DC Comics has continued to publish it. That DC DC Comics has continued to explore sequelizing it, both now in TV form, but in comic book form as well. The film adaptation in 2009 from Zack Snyder, uh, to the point that Damon Lindelof, who did the outreach to to Alan Moore to to, to kiss the ring, so to speak, as he will use that parlance in the interview that you'll hear from him in a little bit, that he he believes that he may have actually been cursed by Alan Moore, is something that Damon Lindelof said in another interview on uh, Vulture in the past week or so, and Alan Moore being a practitioner of the dark art rather famously we can neither confirm nor deny at this hour Antonio that such a curse was placed but we have now at least watched an hour of Lindelof's Watchmen this thing that has been kind of nebulous and what's this going to look like and Damon had this uh, this famous Instagram post that kind of laid out his his general idea for his vision behind why he wanted to tell Watchmen, what he planned to do with it, how he wanted to treat the graphic novel as canon. Laid out those cards on the table, and those were still at the time very very theoretical. Now we can talk about the reality. We can talk about what the actual vision is. I think we still have a ton of questions about <laughs> yes. it. Uh, but I but I think now we can actually talk about the 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 literal realities behind the vision of the show. I'm really excited to talk about because I loved this hour of TV, Antonio.
1: I did too. And you just think about the events of the graphic novel and the impact they would have on world society and the mind reels. Uh, and it's up to Damon Lindelof to reel some of that back in. Uh, and he's a fisher of men. So I'm excited to see how this all plays out over the season and especially excited after this first hour. He
0: also loves fish
1: nuns, I believe,
0: if you follow him on Instagram. He's quite oh fun, Quite fond of those things. Uh, speaking of Damon Lindelof, well, we've talked enough. Let's let's throw it to him really quickly just to kind of speak directly to you, dear listener, about what some of his concerns were heading into Watchmen, uh, why he's excited that now you finally have it in front of you so that you can judge what he's been working on appropriately for yourself. The following 10 minutes of content with Damon Lindelof, it stems from an interview that I did with him in New York City just a couple of weeks ago. He's going to talk about his ideas behind why he wanted to adapt Watchmen, uh, the dangers of adapting Watchmen and a little bit about how this episode, this first hour, structurally connects to the original Watchmen. Now that we can talk about the real Watchmen, now that we could talk about the, you know, from the perspective of the first episode, because as people are listening to this, they have seen it. That's a relief for you, that people know what was in your mind, that people know what you had in mind as you were tackling Watchmen. They are now starting
2: to get a real sense of what that story that that came to you was. Yes. I mean, I've obviously, we started from a point of, oh, Damon's going to do this. I hate to refer to myself in the third person, but that's like you know from from a from a cultural standpoint as someone who loves watching this stuff the first thing that you hear is this filmmaker x is now paired with thing that you love y and so you're like oh todd phillips the hangover guy is gonna do a joker movie like so you always start from a place of um uh, okay what it what what is what is that particular pairing going to yield and so from a from from my perspective, the from the moment that I was offered Watchmen, I could only be in a defensive posture for all the obvious reasons that we can go over ad nauseum. The the first and foremost being the original writer who has asked me not to mention his name in connection with any promotional materials, and I want to honor that, but we all know, we all know who he is, and he's a genius. And I owe everything to him, not because just because of Watchmen, but because of you know his writing informs so much of my storytelling. So the the idea that anybody is doing Watchmen is, is in and of itself problematic. And then, and then on top of that, you have this sort of like fatigue that we all feel of like oh god, like another thing that another non original thing, another take on you know we're going to see the fiftieth version of you're rebooting Spider Man again. Right. Um, god, we you know we just did this, but then you end up with Homecoming, which was probably the best Spidey movie of of the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, So it can be done. And so I immediately needed to explain Here's who I am. Here's my relationship with the source material. Here's what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. But I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Um, and,
0: but and, that's all like very like theoretical until right. you see what you did. And, and, now, and like we watched that first episode. And I think that like what you wrote when you announced the project makes a lot of sense suddenly. Okay. That you're, you're really channeling the feel of Watchmen. There's a lot of structure of Watchmen that's even baked into your show. Um, that there is, there is a Watchmen-iness to what you've created here.
2: Well, I am immensely relieved to hear you say that. I also acknowledge not everybody's going to feel that way. It'll be th- there are other people that I think that are coming to the show without really any knowledge of what the original comic book even was. Yeah. Um and I think that the fan community itself, like if you just ask them what makes Watchmen Watchmen, you'll find a broad um you know, there's it's yeah. not it's not a monolith, but what was cool is and I and I, and I know a lot of people say this because it's the cl- because it's the classy thing to say that you're supposed to say, but in this case, it is just 1,000% authentically true, which is this pilot that you've just seen and all the episodes that will follow it, I got the benefit of putting my name on it because I wrote the pilot, but this the pilot was, was broken by a group of 12 different writers, as were almost all of the episodes, including... The, the complex world building that we had to do between 86 and 2019 because we wanted to treat the original graphic novel as canon, but then we had to create 30 years of new history in between the two. What material. happens post-Squid. And yes, exactly. Um, Post-Squid, P.S. P.S. Um, That's official, the, yeah, right? It's, it is now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, of those 12 people, there was a wide range of... First off, just a lot of diversity in terms of the kind of human beings we are, and where we come from, and what our level of experiences, and you know whether we came from the world of playwriting or the world of television writing, etc. And obviously, gender, race, and uh, ethnicity, religious belief, all that stuff. But the but to this point, what is your relationship with Watchmen? Three of us had a real familiarity with the original source material, like, um, and of those three, you know. A a deep familiarity, and and the other nine had some familiarity, and so as we went through the the story process, we would have Watchmen, a book club. So every three days, we would just go through an issue, panel by panel, and talk about it, which was just an amazing process. And so by the end, we all had Watchmen familiarity. You know, so the neophytes came to know and love the original material, but they weren't afraid to challenge it in a way that I I'm just like, fuck you, this is genius. Like, you're not allowed to challenge it. So suddenly we were having these kind of Talmudic conversations about the original Watchmen as we were creating the new Watchmen. And this show is the result of that, of all those conversations. And I'll just say that for someone as evidenced by what's happening right now, who does a lot of talking, I did a lot of listening, and it was hard for me It shouldn't have been so hard, but it was hard, and it was certainly hard for the other 11 people uh, to get me to listen. But once I did, the show was the result. If I hadn't listened, I don't think anything good ever would have happened, because I was holding this source material so tightly. And once it stopped feeling like it was mine, but more like it was someone else's, or it was a collaborative effort that I was guiding, and that Watchmen was bigger than any of us, even its original creators, the Lord of the Manor, so to speak. <laughs> well, well played, right? Then, then it started getting good. Yeah. So, talk to me
0: about um, constructing this first episode specifically, and the way that it ends, kind of uh, kissing back at the way that Watchmen began, the comic book. Uh, you know, opens with the death of the comedian. Sure. The show sure. ends with the death of uh, poor Judd. Yes. Um, that's intentional, I imagine. That yep. there, there, there are moments that you're trying to, to. It felt to me, anyway, as somebody who really loves that comic book, um, that there were, you know, lines that were connecting across these two mediums.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think Easter egg is a very cutesy way of saying that there have to be acknowledgement. There has to be an open acknowledgement of the appropriation. Yeah, we have appropriated the original Watchmen against the wishes of its parents, at least one of its parents, and uh, and that's okay because. I tend to identify with and get along with people who don't listen to what their parents tell them to do. They still love their parents, but um, you know, what do they know? Right um, now, as the father of a 13-year-old, I'm like,
1: Ooh, I'm hope he's not like listening to podcasts yes, yet.
2: Exactly. <laughs> but uh, he has a point. That yeah. a bastard. Yes. Anyway, and so when you're appropriating, you have to constantly you do you say kiss back to. I say you know pay fealty to or kiss the ring of or yep. take a knee to. Yeah. And so. This Watchman had to end with a moment that was direct—a direct commentary on that appropriation. But at the same time, felt like it wouldn't be befuddling to someone who didn't know that there was a splotch of blood on the comedian's badge. And and he calls it a badge, by the way, the comedian. He doesn't call it a pin. Right. Um, and so the the uh, the idea of doing that with Judd, also having a lot of people have theorized that Don is playing Edward Blake which the years just don't it never made sense right. to me. I was like, well, he, in in 2019, Eddie Blake would be Very you old. know yeah. like 95 or something like that. We constantly had to find ways to tell the audience, particularly the people who felt the uh, about those 12 issues the way that I felt like, "Hey, we we know we're doing this and we love this thing and we want to pay homage to it. But the way to do that is to not do the same things that it did, is to do them in slightly different ways." So if you're going to say everything ends, don't do it the way that it was done in the old graphic novel. Do it in a different way. Put it in a new context so that the audience of the of the original knows that you know that you're playing the hits. Yeah.
0: All right, and that was Damon Lindelof talking about Watchmen. Very exciting to uh say that I have podcasted with David Lindelof by the way I will brag about that uh for for many many years to come starting right here right now all right well let's talk about (laughs) Watchmen, Antonio uh let's let's talk about this show and I I I don't know where you want where you want to start I mean is it worth laying some bedrock some foundation of what the graphic novel was what it represented what the story was as we make our way through the story of this first episode
1: Sure. If you want to do that, uh, I, it, it's it's very complicated, right? Because this is a a property which at some point existed and has been remade and has been spun off. And as you noted before we played the part with the interview with Damon Lindelof, it has been rebooted. Has DC has bring, brought their characters into the Watchmen. You know, there's a lot going on. So the canon, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the canon of this particular show is that the Watchmen graphic novel is canon and that's it. Is there anything else that they're pulling from or anything else they're bringing in that you know of?
0: That's it. Whatever happened in the Watchmen graphic novel happened. Uh, to, to borrow a phrase from one of Damon Lindelof's other notable works. Yes, the, the graphic novel is canon. The film is not. The film, very famously among Watchmen fans, does not adapt the the all important squid and I know that there's probably a lot of squid questions from people who are not familiar with the source material who have just watched this episode uh, the squid happens in the comic does not happen in the film there are bef- uh, before Watchmen comic books there's a sequel comic book series called Doomsday Clock uh, written by Jeff Johns and illustrated by Gary Frank that is uh, combining the world of Watchmen with the greater DC universe so if you ever wanted to see Batman and rorschach hanging out together kind of this is your chance uh none of that is in play here for the show the graphic novel originally as it exists is what exists in the canon of the tv show
1: and we talked about we're going to basically spoil events from the graphic Let's do novel. it right
0: now this is the we time spoil it we have to
1: let it rain like so many squids. Like so many squid. In the context of the graphic novel, which is set in 1985, World War III is on the horizon. The Cold War has not ended, obviously, and U.S.-Soviet relations are so bad that a doomsday clock is ticking toward its finality. People are very, very concerned that things are about to happen. The Soviets in Afghanistan, places all over the world are really just geared up for what is ultimately going to be World War III. And of course, in the nuclear arena, that could mean the End of humanity. This is something that people are tracking, but it's also something that superheroes are tracking. Superheroes exist in this world. Uh, Only one of them actually has superpowers. The rest of them are masked vigilantes. Uh, They have, as masked vigilantes, existed for decades before this, uh, but were banned by the U.S. Senate uh, in the 70s. So they have gone underground. And the story essentially tracks superheroes, uh, these masked vigilantes, trying to uncover a story of why someone is murdering their number. One of their number dies at the beginning of the first chapter of the Watchmen graphic novel and then the other mass vigilantes try to uncover the mystery of who is at the center of killing these mass vigilantes because others of them start to drop. What they find is one of their number, the richest, smartest man in the world, Adrian Veidt, has concocted a plan to, quote, save humanity. And his belief is that you can save humanity by bringing humanity together against a common cause. The problem, of course, is that everyone is oppositional. So the only way you can can unite all of humanity is to bring them together against a common threat. And what he's done with his brains and with his money is has created a common threat in the form of a giant squid. (laughs) I know it sounds crazy. It's quite devastating in in reality uh, because he... He essentially uses very rudimentary teleportation powers, which he has copped a little bit from the only superhero that actually exists, a guy named Dr. Manhattan, who was created as a part of a a failed nuclear experiment, or he was trapped in a chamber and obtained these omniscient otherworldly powers, teleportation being one of them. Adrian Veidt, the richest, smartest man in the world, gets rudimentary teleportation powers, creates this giant psychic squid, which he knows will explode and die upon the moment it's teleported, and he teleports it over New York City. It kills, Josh, three million people. Three million people. However, it does, at least in the context of the book in 1985, seem to put a ceasefire on all of the crazy world oppositional nuclear forces. We don't know what impact it has beyond that. The graphic novel does not go beyond that. But as far as the people of Earth are concerned, this was some sort of intradimensional or alien attack against the the United States and then therefore the world that we have to put down our weapons to face and to confront as a humanity and then the graphic novel ends as far as that goes and we as a TV show pick the world up as we know it in our current day with all of those events having happened there's a lot of other details we'll fill in along the way about some of the details of Watchmen the graphic novel but is there anything you can think of Josh that I didn't mention that we need to hit
0: no I think that those are the important beats Adrian Veidt drops a gigantic squid that is uh, concocted by the minds of great artists and backed by remarkable amounts of money into the heart of New York City, kills millions of people, unites the world as a result. This is the world that we are living in now in Watchmen, the HBO series. It's set in 2019, the vast majority of it anyway, based on what we saw in the pilot, and it's you know roughly 30, 34 years later after the graphic novel. And it's why some of the the things that we are seeing in this show don't entirely line up with our 2019. It would appear that there are no cell phones, there is no internet, people are contacting each other by pager. Uh, pagers are still in vogue in the world of 2019. I like that world, by
1: the way. Can we go back to that world? Pagers, uh, no cell phones?
0: I mean, we would have to sacrifice the podcasting, but maybe a worthy sacrifice. I don't know. Maybe we, would find we? It. we could just go back to old-timey radio, Antonio. I think we could oh. have a
1: career there. I think that that would be fun. Listen, I didn't get deeply into my backstory, but that that's my first love, our old-time radio shows. Uh, You've got so the I, voice
0: for it, my friend.
1: I Thank you. I dial back I dial back my, uh, my interest all the way back to the the early days of vigilantes myself and those <laughs> radio stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I'm a lawyer now, but that's the mask I'm wearing at the moment, I think. Uh, I have to check and look in the mirror, the looking glass, if you will. But uh, but yeah, that's where I, I mean I'm, I'm interested in these things and of course superhero stories and the need for them and what, what value they bring to us uh, is something that has been confronted in a mature way throughout the last couple decades really of superhero storytelling. You talked about how Watchmen in college pulled you back into comedy books. But the graphic novel Watchmen is very much an adult story. And I don't mean that in the NC-17 kind of way, although there is a little bit of adult content in the story. I mean that in terms of the themes that it addresses, in terms of the way that it looks at superheroes evaluating their own place in the world, uh, whether or not their efforts are even worth it, what they should be trying to address. Some of these masked vigilantes go off and work for the CIA and go off and do horrible, horrible things in pursuit of what quote-unquote justice they think is right. There's a lot of that going on. But you're right. The, the world is different. In the graphic novel Watchmen, for example, Richard Nixon, Josh, serves several terms as president. We quote-unquote win the Vietnam War, uh, and he changes the Constitution so he can serve more than two terms as president, and he is the reigning president in the 80s uh, when this is taking place, the events of the graphic novel, and as we see in the story in the show, uh, he is lauded. He's on Mount Rushmore, Josh.
0: He's on Mount Rushmore, yeah. there's There's a whole community within Tulsa, Oklahoma that is literally called Nixonville, so there's still plenty of people who've got lots of love for Richard Nixon in their hearts in the world of Watchmen but the current president as it exists in the show, Robert Redford who canonically in the comic book at the very end is announcing a bid to to run against Nixon in 1988 Uh, so he has, uh, I, I believe that the official company line on how that worked out according to the writers room of HBO's Watchmen is Redford lost that bid for the presidency but eventually won and has been serving as president since the 1990s and you caught a newspaper clipping that you can see at one point in this episode when Angela Abar and the other Tulsa police force officers are infiltrating the 7th Cavalry's headquarters that states Robert Redford not seeking re-election um, so it seems like there will be a sea change at the highest office in the land for the first time in a very long time which is uh, probably going to be a to-do here in the graphic novel but this is obviously a very politically charged story from the ground up from from the from the bedrock of what was written so long ago and very clearly, uh, very politically charged here as it's being conveyed by Lindelof and his team of writers and filmmakers. You know, white supremacy standing front and center as the big threat that is being fought against here. The very, very harrowing opening sequence of this pilot set during the Tulsa riots of, of 1921, which I will fully admit this was not something that was on my radar rather shamefully until you know hearing about it in connection with Watchmen and you you see this first scene and you see people in airplanes flying over Oklahoma and shooting people on the streets and explosions um and you you know you, I, for me anyway my, my first reaction was like this has to be this has to be really dramatized right like this this can't be and you read about it more and it's like this is this 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 plays at least on screen pretty close to what you read about as far as historically what happened with the Tulsa riots um, I think that this idea that we're that we're confronting here on on watchmen you know racial tensions in America even though it feels like uh, the in in many ways the alternate history 2019 that this show is taking place in thank God there's no internet because the internet is the devil as we all know there are so many ways in which the the world seems more uh, more akin to the idealized utopia that Adrian Invite sacrificed millions of lives for that he believed would be achieved, and then in other ways it is it is tragically close to the world that we live in, and is is very dangerous in that regard. Uh, and I think that this is something that will be very challenging for a lot of viewers to to wrap their heads around in this uh, you know this 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 show that is shrouded as uh, pop culture entertainment that comes with such great brand name recognition. Um, I think that people who tuned in on Sunday. Sunday night who tuned into this first episode may be really surprised at what they saw
1: Maybe not just surprised, maybe a little outraged, maybe a little upset, uh, maybe a little concerned that it trends toward exploitative. And I think it's the job of Damon Lindelof and the creators of the show uh, to ensure that that there is justice done in terms of the way the story is told. Uh, And I think that we have certainly seen that trust earned through Damon Lindelof's work uh, in in the way that issues are confronted and, and just the maturity of the storytelling. So I think we can see how that will progress throughout these episodes. But it does seem very clear that we're going to be confronting racial issues head on. This is not something that was a secret. Uh, this was known of course in advance of the premier stuff that was talked about leading up to this. When I think you look at what what our common enemy was or what the greatest threat to our society was in 1984 if you want to say that, it could have been the nuclear panic. It could have been the idea that as as part of a cold war where there were these two countries where Kids growing up in schools had to learn to hide under their desks. Uh, People grew up through the Cuban Missile Crisis and experienced that as a generation, believing that the bomb could be dropped on them at any point. And we had an enemy with missiles bearing down on us. It affected every policy decision that was made throughout the course of several years of United States foreign and domestic policy. So if you want to say in 1984 or 1985, when Watchmen is being written or is set, that that was the major issue that was confronting humanity. If you're looking at Watchmen through the 2019 lens, I don't think you'd be wrong to say that our racial disparity, our focus on what what is different or our focus on what we perceive as different, uh, that the way people are so negative about that uh, and that the negative energy and atmosphere that, it, that their negativity engenders uh, and all of the conflicts we have seen play out as a result of that and how that is influencing so much about what we deal with. Of course, that's the, a common threat and a common problem that we as a society face, and not just in the United States, of course, worldwide. It makes sense that this would be something that you would want to cast Watchmen. And the the kind of response that we as a society need to make, or what things need to happen in order for us to be able to confront these things, it makes sense that this is what Watchmen would be, but it is definitely thorny and very difficult territory. And the show, as you're pointing out, starts off not in any way shying away from it. In fact, dialing us back to 1921 with these very horrible real events, uh, and then bringing us into the present and showing that racial strife and whatever racial issues were present in the same city uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the, the 1921 settings are set, we're seeing that play out uh, with our characters in Tulsa, Oklahoma in, the, in modern day. And the people of the Watchmen world uh, have responded to Watchmen in various ways, clearly. One of the ways, unfortunately, is that Rorschach's journal, at least seemingly, has been read. Rorschach kept a journal during the graphic novel of Watchmen of everything that he was experiencing as he was investigating the case, up to and including his belief that Veidt was at the center of it. And he sent that journal out to a right-wing newspaper. We can only assume that it was published and at least some people read it, because the 7th Cavalry the white supremacist organization, quote from the journal directly. uh, And they seem to be having uh, a lot of hostile moments, not just with seemingly uh, people of a different race than them, but with police officers who are charged with upholding the law. That's another hot button, obviously, Josh, for police officers to be at the center of this story.
0: For sure. I think as it pertains to the 7th Cavalry, and that's cavalry with a K, that it's the fact that these are people who are wearing Rorschach's mask, uh, and that is such a beloved character, from Watchmen, you know, Detective Batman. Although Batman's already a detective, uh, but you know, it's kind of like fulfilling that same that same role within the within the the, the framework of the graphic novel. Uh, I think that that's a it's a, it's a very risky move. And, and Lindelof has talked about how there's an appropriation of Rorschach to a certain degree within the world of HBO's Watchmen, much in the way that the graphic novel Watchmen is being appropriated by the makers of, of Watchmen. And I think that that's a compelling way to look at it. I think when you look back at Rorschach as a character, he's a big fan of the New Frontiersman, which is the the right-wing newspaper that he is reading all the time. He sends his journal to the New Frontiersman. There is an, an an article in the New Frontiersman that is published within the graphic novel in the um uh, addition, uh the ancillary material. There's ancillary material from the graphic novel that gets published uh along the way, including uh, you know, basically, you know, fictional pages from uh the newspapers. And this is a this is a quote from it in one of the issues, there's uh, there's an editorial that's basically in defense of masked vigilantism that references uh, a rival newspaper, a more liberally-minded newspaper called Nova Express, that writes, Nova Express makes many sneering references to costumed heroes as direct descendants of the Ku Klux Klan. But might I point out that despite what some might view as their later excesses, the Klan originally came into being because decent people had perfectly reasonable fears for the safety of their persons and belongings when forced into proximity with people from a culture far less morally advanced that's a quote from the new frontiersman in the world of Watchmen and that was Rorschach's favorite paper so uh, for for people who are who are subscribing to that ideology putting on the Rorschach masks maybe more in character than than some would be uh, inclined to
1: confront
0: as for Rorschach
1: himself himself is a test right the Rorschach mm-hmm. blot test is whatever you see in the inkblot represents you the character Rorschach is a morality test depending on your views of him and where where you slide out after you read the graphic novel, it says a lot about you as a person. It says a lot about your own morality and where you draw the lines. And I'm not making my own moral judgment about you uh, if you think one way or another about him, just that it's interesting that the character himself says that, these people seem to not reflect any kind of lack of clarity or any sort of a disambiguation or something confusing about Rorschach or a different interpretation about his methods or his ways. Uh, what these people have taken is strictly the racism, it seems like.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that they've taken the name The Seventh Cavalry, which is Ozymandias himself quotes The Seventh Cavalry in a very different newspaper appearance. He appears in an issue of Nova Express, uh, which is the the political opposition uh, to to New Frontiersmen. And in an issue that is published much later in Watchmen's Run, uh, Ozymandias is giving an interview about where you are in the face of Armageddon. Which side are you on? Are you with the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Or are you the Seventh Calvary that is fighting against the face of Armageddon? And these people who could not be more politically opposed to what it was that Ozymandias, at least on the face of it, was trying to represent, have taken Seventh Calvary as their name. Is it just a, a, a cute Watchmen Easter egg for people who have really closely studied the source material, or is this like a pointed uh, rebuking of of Ozymandias? Is uh, I think up for interpretation right now, but I thought that that was really really interesting. Definitely. In terms of the the story itself of of what we are dealing with here, I think it was it was a really big surprise to me, uh, and something that I that I touched on in in the interview with with Mr. Lindelof that you see uh, you see the great Don. Johnson all over the promotional material for Watchmen, Uh, and yet his character Judd Crawford, who is in charge of the police force here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is a magnificent part of this first episode, but poor Judd is dead by the end poor of, Judd is of, dead. of the episode with the great call outs to Oklahoma and indeed the episode title It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice, drawing from that song from the musical Oklahoma and that very staggeringly terrifying final image of Judd hanging from the tree with Lewis Gossett Jr.'s mysterious character sitting next to him, Regina King as Angela Abar looking on at her friend who is dead as the music comes down, as the cam- camera pans down and focuses on that badge on the ground with a drop of blood splashing on it. And in that moment, I think that that was a real unifying moment of clarity for me of like, Okay, I'm I'm really starting to feel and see how this show plans on interacting with the graphic novel and the source material. I do think that very uh, in very clever ways, this is uh, structurally winking and nodding at what's come before. The graphic novel launches with the death of a masked vigilante, with the death right. of the comedian, and it becoming a, a real murder mystery at it, at its core engine of who killed the comedian, why did the comedian die, and that's the that's the first sequence that you get. Here in this first episode, in the last sequence, we're getting the show's version of that. Who killed Judd? Why is Judd dead? And where are we going to go from here?
1: And of course, in the graphic novel, you see the comedian's badge, a, a smiley face, a yellow smiley face with a drop of blood on it. And here you see Judd's badge uh, with the drop of blood on it at the end. I think you call it kissing back. There is a lot of that uh, inner shared DNA or kissing references back to the graphic novel, both overtly and covertly. There are a lot of Easter eggs, but there are also just a lot of direct reference. And so I think for fans of the graphic novel, uh, there is a lot of reward in this. But for those of you watching the show who haven't seen or who haven't read the graphic novel. Uh, you, you, I don't think you lose anything, but it is, I think, important to know that this is something that is being directly referenced throughout as though those events happened and just as though we read the book, as though the events of us, you know, reading the book have happened. So it is not something that's going to exist separate and apart from the graphic novel. It is not something that's going to redo the graphic novel, at least overtly, and they may do it in a subtle way. And that's something I think we can talk about here as you noted, the masked vigilante known as the comedian is killed at the beginning of the graphic novel, and the question of who is killing these masked vigilantes becomes the story that we're exposing throughout. I have to note that at the, at the beginning, if you will, of this season, uh, the episode ends with Judd dying. Uh, are we to assume that there's a possibility that Judd is a character from the graphic novel, uh, or is that something you think that the show is interested in talking about, or is he just a guy who was a law enforcement officer and was just killed because there are some random racists wandering around his town?
0: Well, Judd certainly seems to have a thing for owls.
1: (laughs) He does. He certainly seems
0: to be rather interested in owls. I mean, there's a lot of owl imagery uh, hovering around Judd Crawford. He is most notably flying an owl ship, I do not believe that that is Archie, the uh, Archimedes, the specific owl ship that is belonging to Dan Dreeberg, aka Night Owl, who is one of the core heroes uh, or core protagonists, at least uh, at the heart of the comic book. But perhaps it is. But why else is Judd flying around in an owl ship? Why does Judd's office have owl glasses uh, that Angela Abar is drinking from? Why is there a copy of Under the Hood, which is a book that is written by Hollis Mason in the world of of Watchmen, who is the original Night Owl. Is Judd Dan Dreeberg, or is he just super obsessed with Night Owl and the history around Night Owl? Or is there another explanation entirely? These are just fun Easter eggs for people who know the comic book. I'm not entirely sure where where I land on it, ultimately, other than by the end of the graphic novel, Dreeberg is on the run alongside Laurie, who is the Silk Spectre, who is his, uh, his partner at that point in time. They are wearing different disguises, they have different names, and they are planning on continuing to live out a vigilante life together and have further adventures of Night Owl and Silk Spectre. We know that casting has been announced that Gene Smart is playing Laurie 34 years on from that moment. There's been no such announcement. Surrounding Dan Dreeberg Is it possible that uh, At some point post Watchmen That character decided to to Move to Tulsa, Oklahoma And get into the law enforcement Game and barely hide the fact That he's Night Owl <laughs> I guess it's
1: possible
0: But it does strike me as unlikely My guess is, is that this is a different character My guess is that this is a character Created for the show uh, Even if he would be roughly the same age As, as Dan Dreeberg I think it would be a little bit on the nose to have it be the same exact guy but i'm i'm confounded as to why he's got this uh night owl obsession and it makes me wonder has the government gotten their hands on uh night owl technology right like are, are is right. there is there an owl ship for every station uh is every are they fairly cheap to make otherwise why is nobody panicking when the owl ship just crashes in the middle of the cow ranch uh shootout with the 7th cavalry everybody seems to be pretty cavalier about that. So those are some of my questions surrounding Judd as it pertains to the owls of it all.
1: Well, the owl ship does seem to say police on the bottom as it's crashing. So that does seem to lend some credence that maybe the police just built archies everywhere. Like the police forces in every small town burg in every state have archies that they can use, which is, I think, pretty cool. What Maybe, a world. I don't know. What a world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, the hot topic of uh, police acquiring a weaponry that is far too advanced for anything they need to do is something we can consider, and uh, so are extra judicial police executions, which is what we see in this episode. I think it's uh, probably a little easier to stomach when you see them being of odious people, with whom you don't agree and whom you think that maybe they they brought it on themselves because they were declaring war on the police in a white supremacist kind of way but these are hot buttons that they're pressing for sure and fire will shoot out if you press a hot button uh and i'm not sure that uh i'm not sure that just saying oh somebody's obsessed with the night owl that's cool like they have the machine that's cool he's a police officer he has weaponry that as a police officer it's a little odd that he would have and i think it does say something about the state of the police force in the current timeline of the the show Watchmen. Another thing that says something about the state of the police force in the current timeline of the show Watchmen are the fact that they can't show their faces, Josh? Right. Do you think that this is just in Tulsa, Are we meant to assume this, or do you think this is kind of worldwide, or at least U.S. wide, that there is such strife with police and the people that they police that police have to cover their faces? Yeah. Up? it does seem like there's a very notable incident, at least in Tulsa, that we can talk about.
0: Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know about what the what the what the further ramifications are of it. Angela played by brilliantly by Regina King. Uh, we certainly have not said enough about that yet. She talks about it in her classroom presentation. When And she's showing all the kids how to how to make the mooncakes. And she's talking about the white knight. And this seems to be an incident that occurred where police officers were targeted. And now people uh, now police officers are allowed to wear masks to protect their identities. Is that a wide reaching legislation? Was that unique to Tulsa? It flies in the face of the Watchmen world's position on vigilanteism within the confines of the comic, where uh, a, a law had been passed called the Keene Act that prevents masked vigilanteism from continuing, and Doctor Manhattan is allowed to do it because he's working specifically with the government and the comedian as well. Uh, but beyond that, it's outlawed, and here it's been legalized. It's been weaponized. It's a it's a big about face, and it does seem like uh, a recent change as as well. I don't know if it's far reaching or. If it's just localized to here. But it's, it's a very interesting contrast to, to the world that Lindelof and his writers have inherited.
1: It isn't, it isn't just that they have to cover their faces or they feel that they need to cover their they faces. They create because
0: full alter egos. Uh,
1: Some of them create full alter egos as masked vigilantes, not just as police officers in uniform. They also have to receive special clearance to use their weapons. Uh, even in the moment, uh, as we see at the beginning of the episode, where there is reason to believe that they are confronting somebody uh, who might present a threat to them and who in, we, in fact, see does present a threat to them, uh, they have to call ahead and get, and get clearance to get their gun unlocked. It's not something where police officers are carrying guns around on their hips. That said, as we see, some of these people who wear masks seem to think they can just be violent whenever they want uh, and do whatever they need to do to extract information. So there is a very interesting thing going on with the police force at least in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as we see as relates to the the citizenry whom they are working with as police officers. And it, it does, I think, speak to some of the issues of our day. Uh, but I think, of course, we don't really know why some of those things are happening. Like, are the guns locked up because of something that only happened in Tulsa? Is this a nationwide thing? Uh, is this sort of an, the inevitability? Or is this meant to have commentary on what would happen if we as a society were to treat our police this way? These are the sorts of things I, can, I think will get thorn with this show uh, because these are the issues that people like to write and talk about online and they're certainly issues that are important to people's lives and so it it is interesting to look at what's going on with the police force in this show from that lens it also makes you wonder why someone would put a panda head on their head and wear it in a closed room. <laughs> right. Like, why is that happening?
0: Right, right, right. Or how Looking Glass is able to see underneath that mask? Uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character Wade, who uh, who is uh, the, the man in the heart of the pod with the mirror mask on his face. Gotta know. Got to know how he's able to see. Uh, I guess if back in uh, the days of the Watchmen graphic novel, Rorschach in the 1980s and the mid-80s was able to wear a mask where ink blots would move around, there was that technology available, then you got to believe that you could wear a fairly thin fiber on your face that is reflective, yet you yourself could see and breathe through comfortably. I just don't know how that's achievable, but I applaud whoever created the invention aside from panda's head <laughs> and looking glasses mask did any of these these new characters stand out to you of particular note anybody that you're gravitating to early on
1: it's uh, there's a character Called Red Scare, yes, right? Yes. According to IMDb, which with uh, the powdered donut in- mouth, powdered donut mouth, and uh, and a, a funny voice. Uh, obviously, he. I don't know if this is part of his character. If he's staying in character the whole time, if this is really how he talks. It's just interesting to me in light of the events of the graphic novel of Watchmen, uh, that we would have someone called Red Scare being a masked vigilante uh, as a police officer ish in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't know uh, how that backstory happens, uh, but that's that's something that really stood out to me, and I laughed. But I just can't get over Panda. And everyone seems to hate Panda. He's obviously a real by-the-books guy, uh, such that when he, he is really pushing back on whether we're going to allow the police to have their weapons uh, and to not use warrants over the next 24 hours, uh, after they have seen the video from the cavalry uh, and seen that essentially white supremacist war on the police and the people presumably is back, uh, Panda's like, now, 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 does everyone want to talk about this? And no one likes Panda. And Panda got and that di-
0: guy shot, basically. Right. I mean, yeah, the, he did. The man who pulled over the first uh, 7K Rorschach, you know, he would have been able to access his weapon if Panda wasn't such a stickler about it.
1: Right. Yeah. He had to sit in that car forever because of what was going down with Panda. And that gave the guy time to put on the mask and get a gun out and shoot yeah, him. Yeah. If he so, buzzed him
0: like even 10 seconds earlier, I think things would have, right. uh, we would have found out what's underneath the romaine and not just croutons. Again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Again now, though, what we're doing in discussing this is we're making an argument for uh, uh, weapons to be more re- readily available with for police, which is an interesting position to be in, and not a great one. Yeah. Uh, and I think it shows the high wire that the show has to walk on uh, in, in in taking on these issues and will be very interesting to watch be executed, and I don't mean that word lightly, just throughout the course of this series how will they handle uh, what's happening with these issues, and they're certainly cognizant of them. The first part of that interaction that we see at the beginning with the police officer is him saying, like, you're going to be recorded, are you consenting to this? Body cams are right there in the middle of the scene so a lot of what happens in this show is happening in the background. It is just basically accepting that we'll pick up on these little details. Like, for example, the pickup truck he pulled over has a battery. These are, these are electric cars. Even beat-up pickup trucks are electric in this world. I don't know if gasoline is part of what's happening. They had electric cars mean-
0: as early as the comic book, too. Uh, the, right. The Bernie, who's the guy who's reading Tales from the Black Freighter, is always leaning back on one of the charging stations. So yet another way where this is this world is uh, more... more... More environmentally friendly in some ways than ours.
1: And does that mean our foreign policy is different? Does that right. mean, for example, when we see the twin towers in the interrogation scene, when there is a discussion of terrorism, is that uh, is that just sort of bait for us as a as a society who understands those in a terrorism context, or are they still standing in the context of the show? We don't really know these things, uh, but what we know is that we are in a different enough world that the similar details will still trigger us and will still put us in a position where we react a certain type of way. Uh, but they are they are representative of. Of that world and that world's issues. So for example, when the police need more weapons or need to be able to use these weapons, we have to be able to compartmentalize and consider it in the context of a different version of the world than we live in now. Uh, we can certainly use the values that we have from our world uh, to interpret whether we feel it's appropriate or not, but I think we have to look at it in the context of the story that we're watching and not just in our own context. And that's the, like I said, that's the high wire that's difficult for the show. The, that's the needle that has to be threaded. Uh, and that's what we'll definitely be tracking as we go on. But the, the show is cognizant of it, clearly. Uh, and Panda is, I think, representative of this. That he's so hated is an interesting take, uh, but he's definitely there. Uh, Don Johnson says, well, you know, or, or Judd says, what's well, my funeral? And by the end of the episode, we're pretty much there. So, so we've
0: seen uh, in, in the trailers, we've seen uh, imagery of a funeral. And, I yeah. you know, heading into this would not have guessed that they would have gotten rid of Don Johnson so quickly. And I we, feel kind listen, of he got a
1: Listen, he got a great musical moment in this episode. Episode. Who knew he could sing? Did you know Don Johnson could sing? It was,
0: it was not on my radar. Loved getting into Oklahoma, and this was something that uh, before we went on the air, I talked to to Damon Lindelof and thanked him profusely uh, for inserting some Oklahoma into this. And he said, "Look, if you're going to set your show in Oklahoma, you kind of have to bring in Oklahoma." Uh, so I think that that was uh, fairly early on baked into uh, baked into the premise of uh, of at least what this first episode was going to sound like. The the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score. Notwithstanding Which by the way Oh my goodness
1: the score is phenomenal. Nice. It's great. It's really cool because sometimes it echoes things like uh, like your, your, your famous scores from Kubrick movies or things from the past and sometimes it is so clearly Reznor and Ross like in that in interrogation scene where it just seemed like they're, they're, some of their best stuff that they've done in the past. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the palette that they create throughout uh, with different styles of, of sound cues or different styles of, uh, of just things that they've created for the backdrops of these scenes but it is noticeable, prevalent, and really, really good throughout the course of this episode.
0: All right. Well, how about uh, with the graphic novel? Uh, th- it certainly hones in on specific characters at specific points in time. But I think as a as a as a whole, you could call it an ensemble piece. And I think here with the drama, with the HBO adaptation or continuation rather, it feels like it it's got a fairly vast cast at this point. But this does feel like Regina King's story to me. This feels It it feels like this is Angela Abar, the character she's playing, a.k.a. Sister Knight, hailing from Vietnam, the 51st state in uh, the world of Watchmen, and that was already locked in in the graphic novel. You see it as an aside in one of the newspaper clippings uh, in one of those highly detailed panels that Dave Gibbons so dutifully and brilliantly illustrated back in the day. And she tells her story about how she used to work for the police. She lived in Vietnam her entire life. Then she was a police officer there. Then she moved to Tulsa. I think that there's a lot of questions about what brought her to Tulsa uh, that will have to be answered in the weeks ahead. Uh, And of course, she's lying to the classroom when she says that she is no longer a police officer. We see her go into full sister night mode. And you're right that there's a tension of like, am I supposed to root for this character? Also, I can't help not root for this character uh, as we're getting that really amazing like get your superhero on montage, right, of her like going through the the different levels of the bakery, uh, her bakery cave, the bat cave for, for Sister Knight, and just the, the music that is underscoring that and the way that uh, Nicole Cassell, who who directed this episode so well, frames it all is just is really mesmerizing. Um, but by the end of the hour, you know, we've been we've been charting her her working this case and trying to figure out why is the Seventh Calvary having this resurgent moment after, I guess, a, a relative calm period, a quiet Quiet period following this white knight incident several years earlier why have they popped their heads up again that there seems to be a, a real fear that something terrible is about to happen and she's got this great companionship with judd crawford and by the end of the hour we're we're left in her shoes of like what the hell has just happened to my friend what has happened to, to poor judd and where does she go from from here so i'd love to just get some of your broad stroke takeaways From this performance, from this character, what excites you about possibly following this story through the eyes of Sister Knight?
1: First of all, I want to know why she picked uh, a nun. Like That's just an interesting conceit for your superhero alter ego or your masked vigilante alter ego. I say this as someone who was raised Catholic, uh, and nuns can be rather intimidating sometimes. I was beaten about the head and neck with a ruler more times than I can count by nuns. So, But uh, nuns are also some of the coolest people I've ever met. Uh, It's just fascinating that she picked a nun. I would love to know what's going on there. The bakery stuff is cool. I don't know if it's just meant to be a cover or if it's just sitting there because eventually she'd have to open the bakery. It seems like police officers do have to come up with these cover stories. Uh, and so I don't know what people think about her in the community. Uh, she has an interesting blended family. I, I'm curious to know what the story is with her children, uh, how long she's been married. Uh, just like you said, we, we heard a refer- a passing reference to her father there. Uh, is her father somebody that we're going to find more about in the story? Marcus Abar, that was uh, what was referenced on the phone call to her that drew her to the train. Louis At Gosset the end of the episode. Character. Yeah seemingly from Lewis Gossett Jr.'s character, Will Reeves, uh, as he's cited on IMDb. His name being Will Reeves is interesting to me because Bass Reeves is the person we see in the silent film at the beginning uh, of the episode. So, and Bass Reeves was a real person. This, so I don't know if Will Reeves was a name he took uh, or what the connection is there, but he is seemingly the boy with the note from the beginning of the episode. Uh, When he confronts her in front of her bakery, he says, do you think I could lift 200 pounds? I don't want
0: to say no, to lewis gossett jr. I want to believe that lewis gossett jr. Can lift 200 pounds
1: I was just going to say that you, if anybody ever asks you that, especially if they're sitting in a wheelchair and they're outside of your business, just say yes, yes and move yes. on. Right? Yes,
0: you could lift. She, Regina King for does sure. the right thing. Yes, 100%. yeah, she does
1: the right thing. She's great. I mean, her character is great throughout. Uh, but she says yes to him. I think you could lift 200 pounds. At the end of the episode, we see with we see him with what is seemingly like a 200 ish body above his head. Uh, did he know that this was going to happen?
0: Did he know that it was going to happen? Is he responsible for it? I think that those are important questions. That we're, that were left with at that moment.
1: How did he get his wheelchair out in the middle of a field under a tree? Right. Like maybe he is a really strong dude. What's his story? Why is he still carrying the note around so that we can see it? What happened to the other uh, baby that was with him as a child at the beginning of the episode? Is that somehow connected to Angela Abar? Is he somehow connected? What is the connection? These are all very open ends. I like seeing her not just as a vigilante, but as a person that's part of a family, as a mother. Uh, I love seeing her in the scene with the squid, Her kid, uh, because of course she's at the school. uh, She's telling the story of building her bakery, uh, and then a young boy in the room says, "Did you build it with red fortations?" Right, which would seem to be some form of reparations, perhaps related directly. To the Tulsa Massacre of 1921. That massacre in Tulsa in 1921 uh, was considered what was the massacre of Black Wall Street or Greenwood in the Greenwood district of Tulsa. As we see Regina King approaching her bakery, we see it's on Greenwood Avenue. So theoretically or seemingly in the exact same area uh, where this horrible violence took place. So, what is her link to that? The Redford Nations thing speaks to, I think, desire by at least some people, including up to the President of the United States, to make Right on some level because of the racial treatment that has occurred in the past. So, uh, obviously, that's creating a problem for idiot 10 year olds like this kid. uh, And that causes uh, Regina King's child to go ham uh, and punch this kid in the face. He's not a race, but he's off to a good start. Yeah, exactly. Like, not a racist, but he sounds like yeah. one, right? Yeah, like this is uh, this is certainly what that kid's hearing. Which is really funny to see Regina King in the car, uh, and then the squidening happens, Josh. Uh, what what is going on with the squidening? Because we know that the squid and in interdimensional things weren't technically real; they were created, as we talked about earlier, by Ozymandias, by Adrian Veidt, to make humanity think they were under interdimensional threat right. from giant squid, right?
0: And his fleet of artists that he that he recruited to his plan right. who, who did not know what they were a part of but uh there's there's the great recurring tales from the black freighter in the graphic novel which is a pirate comic because pirate comics are super popular in the world of watchmen i don't know if they are anymore pirate jenny is on the tulsa oklahoma police force so i'm inclined to believe that pirates are still in but the writer max shea from tales from the black freighter is one of the minds that ozymandias uses to help develop the telepathic squid the interdimensional telepathic squid and and to come up with the backstory behind it so that when this telepathic squid drops in the middle of New York City and sends out this telepathic shockwave that traumatizes telepathically the people who survive not getting squashed and exploded to death, that they will have this uh, terrifying backstory of this very real feeling interdimensional world seared into their brains. So in the world of Watchmen post graphic novel, you have to assume that these people feel like they actually have some level of detail about another world that exists, that is a constant threat to the world in which they occupy. So it would appear that this squid rain which if you know nothing about the comic book just plays like a, like a P.T. Anderson moment right it's raining frogs right. all of a sudden and it's Magnolia in the middle of your Watchmen uh, and it even is played kind of lightly in the context of the show uh, with three little birds with, playing in the background yeah with a cover of three little birds with the Bob Marley of it all playing and it's very light underneath it and for me like I couldn't t- like I, I, I can't find like a real significance in the song itself to the to the imagery that's happening on screen likely something that I'm missing. But for me, it at least read as if you know the comic book, then you know that this squid rain that's coming down is uh, not necessarily the real threat that everybody else seems to think it is. And maybe for the people who do not know what the squid is, this is like a a signal of like this is actually like a a wink at like sort of the whimsical oddity that you are going to find awash all over Watchmen. I can't imagine that we're going to build to another gigantic, massive, horrible squid in incident because that would feel like it was retreading that material in a a way that Lindelof seems in in his statements about his intent to not want to do. But I'm open to it if there's a good idea. Love the squid. Big fan. I was very sad to see it excised from the film. So I'm I'm, I'm happy to see the squid reign here. What What it mostly indicates to me on a plot level, Antonio, and this is the point where you and I say that we podcast about Mr. Robot each and every week over at Post Show Recaps, and as a very light spoiler for that show the first season culminates in a very big event that happens and the the remaining seasons uh largely deal with the fallout of it and there's a there's a line in the second season specifically talking about this grand plan and how the execution of the plan will be difficult, but that's not the hard part. It's what comes after. It's it's what comes next. And I think Squid Rain is a great indication of of uh, Ozymandias' plan. Uh, Ozymandias drops a telepathic squid in the middle of New York, convinces the whole world that there's an interdimensional threat that we all need to unite behind, and begins the process of building something akin to a utopia. How do you keep that fiction up? 34 years on sporadic squid rain uh, would be my guess this seems like this is an ssr this is an accepted part of the universe of of watchman the hbo show that the of the of the hbo's uh, Watchmen drama that the that the squid rain is continuing and it indicates that Ozymandias' plan is continuing but We don't know exactly what's going on with Ozymandias himself. There is a a newspaper headline that Lewis Gossett Jr.'s character is reading a newspaper and it says, Adrian Veidt officially declared dead, that he is presumed dead and now officially declared dead. HBO is not officially declaring Jeremy Irons as playing Adrian Veidt, but everybody who is involved with this project has basically just talked around it in the tightest of circular ways. Uh, Like they're, they're all but outright saying at New. New York Comic Con when Jeremy Irons was on stage and was announced as part of uh, the the panel lineup. I believe in in the context of the show they're calling him the Lord of the Manor, uh, but at New York Comic Con they were they referred to him as probably who you think he is. <laughs> so I mean like that is that is that is the level scar that is uh, yeah that oh my god be prepared uh, that is the the level of uh, of quote unquote secrecy that they are displaying with that character. And yet whatever is happening with this man who may or may not be but probably is Adrian Vite is deeply confounding. Is the Jeremy Irons we are seeing in this episode, A, I just want to know what you think, and B, do you think that this is a man who is responsible for squid rain?
1: I don't know about the squid rain part of it. That's the weird part because clearly he's yeah, up to something. Yeah,
0: definitely the weird part, Antonio.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the weird part. Not the naked uh, play typing, not the servants who seem straight out of like some kind of uncanny valley or Stepford, uh, not the riding a horse for several days, not the cake that he can barely eat, uh, not being handed a horseshoe to cut the cake instead of a knife. Yes, uh, not any of that. The weird, the weird part is whether he's doing the squid rain or not. Who knows what's going on with the lord of the manor? It's... That also, by the way, that's what I'm going to officially call you on this podcast. Uh, But who knows what is going on with the Lord of the Manor? I would say definitely seems to be Adrian Veidt, the Adrian Veidt from the graphic novel. Considered himself to be the smartest man in the world. Definitely looked at things through a very intelligent lens. Uh, His idol was Alexander the Great. Uh, He realized at some point that he could be better than Alexander the Great, Uh, and he realized at some point that he could essentially be a god. You're talking about a man from the graphic novel who can catch bullets, like, and this is just a normal man. He has trained himself to do uh, just extra human things, and of course, his plan, quote unquote, technically worked in the. But you got to imagine that guy who is so insanely dedicated to what he's doing that he would kill three million people in order to quote unquote save the rest of them. Would not just let this go. He would not just expect it to be fixed. He would probably try to uh, make sure that it was con- continued to be followed through on, or that people were still buying into it. That said, I think what we see from the events of Tulsa is that it didn't really work. Like people are still in horrible positions. Uh, people are being executed. Uh, the there is just extreme racial tension uh, that is present from everywhere to kids' classrooms to killings with the police. So this is not a plan that worked. And you've got to imagine the guy that did what he did in the graphic novel would not just let that go by the wayside. In fact, in his discussions at the manor with his weird servant staff, he talks about how he's in the process of another project, a five-act play. And the play is going to be called The Watchmaker's Son. The Watchmaker's Son, in the context of the graphic novel Watchmen, is, of course, Dr. Manhattan, the one actual person with superpowers in the context of the Watchmen graphic novel. In that in that graphic novel, theoretically, Dr. Doctor, Doctor Manhattan disappears to another galaxy. That's where he ends the story. We see him referenced in this show as somehow being on Mars and building and destroying buildings and things on Mars, which is a place we know he retreated to in the graphic novel. Being as Dr. Manhattan can kind of be everywhere and nowhere at the same time, Josh, and being as Veit, who is who he is, uh, do you think there's a connection between the two here in this story, and is that sort of what Veit may be up to—trying to either bring Doctor Manhattan back or create a new Doctor Manhattan of his own?
0: Yeah, I think that there's there's some sort of Manhattan project that is probably going on with nice. uh, with with the the Lord of the Manor storyline, but what exact what form that takes. At, at this point, there's just no way to say. But the, the Watchmaker's son being the play that he is focusing on, it's so great to watch him uh, you know, banging away on the typewriter. Uh, the, <laughs> completely it, it, nude. It completely in the nude. With uh, raw thighs. Uh, Jeremy Irons apparently was uh, seduced into being part of Watchmen over lunch with Damon Lindelof, and he tells the story of Lindelof explaining his full arc for the season, and Jeremy Irons walking away from that interaction being like, I have absolutely no idea what that man is all about and what he wants to do, and he seems pretty crazy, but he seems really into it, and I'm very into the fact that he's into it, Uh, and that is what inspired Jeremy Irons to take on the role. So I think that whatever that storyline is going to bear out as, my expectation is that it's going to be a blast to watch, because it was so strange to watch in this first episode, and I can only imagine where it's going to go. The Manhattan connection seems pretty obvious with The Watchmaker's Son, what that looks like as far as a play, if that's like a grander act that he has for the world, should we be terrified uh at the notion of I've written a play, like he's written another story, he's written another fiction? Is this going to take some inspiration from Zack Snyder's film, which instead of using the squid, instead pinned the destruction of New York City on Dr. Manhattan? I doubt it, but I, I guess it's not entirely impossible that some sort of nefariousness will occur connected to Dr. Manhattan. I have um, some skepticism about what this episode tells us about Dr. Manhattan. It tells us very little, but there is a very quick flash on screen of Dr. Manhattan is on Mars. And it seems like there's some sort of live satellite broadcast of Dr. Manhattan just hanging out on Mars, building sandcastles on Mars, still doing the same thing he was doing Thirty-four years ago, uh, in the comic book, this is a this is a man, if you want to call him that. He once was a man, John Osterman, much like Cobra Commander, but is now much more than a man, as a veritable god, as Doctor Manhattan. At the end of the comic book, he tells Adrian Veidt that he is going to leave this galaxy to find new ones and maybe create life of his own. Does that sound like a person who is still on Mars? 34 years later, do you think that the fast and loose relationship Dr. Manhattan has with time allows for him to to be bored for 34 years if he can see far enough into his own future that in 35 years or 34 years and three weeks or whatever the timeline would be to draw him in deeper into the HBO timeline storyline, uh, that he could tolerate that because he knows that that's just what he's fated to do? What are your Dr. Manhattan theories?
1: It's interesting because Veidt is somebody, when he executes his plan, Dr. Manhattan kills Rorschach and says, like, well, you have to kind of protect the story here. He begrudgingly agrees to be part of it, but he also says, I'm going to remove myself now and I'm going to go do the other galaxies thing like you're talking about. But one of the things he says to Veidt before he leaves is nothing ends, nothing ever ends. He sees time and perceives time much differently than any of us do. Uh, He's able to be there 35 seconds ago and 35 seconds ahead, there are some really cool moments in the graphic novel where that is made clear. He's also able... To separate himself and have multiple versions of himself, uh, he's making love to his partner and working in the other room at the same time, which is uh, incredibly unsettling for his partner, to say the least. Fairly he's uncool. Able to,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> very uncool. Very, very not a not a good move by Doctor Manhattan. Uh, and he's able to pull people to Mars at sort of a moment's notice. So would he be able to make it seem as though he was on Mars when he was in fact somewhere else? Of course he would. Would Adrian Vite, the person who he got in his head by saying nothing ends, nothing ever ends? Would he be interested in finding Dr. Manhattan? Of course he would. Uh, Does Dr. Manhattan play some role in the story? Is that why the watch batteries are around? Possibly. Is that what's going on with Jeremy Irons? It seems very likely, but we don't know what form that takes, and we certainly don't know where Dr. Manhattan is, and really all we really know... Is what it's like in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, would Dr. Manhattan uh, in the books consider him, or in the book, consider the events of what's happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma as something that required his attention? I really don't think so if you're able to make him connected to those events in some way, uh, maybe he would, uh, and maybe that's where Lori comes in, uh, if Lori being uh, his ex-lover, if she comes into Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is part of the story of the events there, does that draw Dr. Manhattan's attention to Tulsa, Oklahoma? And is that something that, because Dr. Manhattan's attention is drawn there, Adrian Veidt's attention gets drawn there? Is that the way this story comes together? All of that is TBD, but the Adrian Veidt of the graphic novel, who we believe is the lord of the manor, and Jeremy Irons here is not the kind of person that would just let this plan stop. And he he really wanted to do what he thought was the right thing. Uh, he had this sort of uh, just delusions of grandeur about his role in it, but this is the kind of guy that built himself a terrarium in Antarctica and lived there. His servants in that, in that graphic novel were people that he killed. So what's up with these servants? Are they clones? Are they robots of some kind? Uh, they clearly don't know how to bake a cake uh, or maybe give an appropriate <laughs> birthday gift. Yeah. So... Um, this is, is something that concerns It was an oddly shaped
0: him. cake by the way.
1: It was an oddly shaped cake and it was given a horseshoe to cut it and that was like oh a horseshoe like really it was kind of a like the way it played was that he was disappointed. <laughs> yeah. You know oh I, c- I could get you a knife oh no that's fine I'll use this fork like it was just a, it was a moment where I felt like he may have been working to develop these these AI servants and that was a failure on their part if that's what they are and they recognized it and he recognized it no one was happy about it uh, but he tried to stump make the kick down all the same. Where Dr. Manhattan plays in all this, it does seem like Vite is very interested in him. And it seems like Dr. Manhattan is not interested in what's going on. Uh, So what brings that all together? TBD. I I don't think he's just on Mars, though. He's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. That's what this guy can do. And so his his powers are are so legendary. I I understand why the movie decided to go a different direction with how it ended, uh, because Dr. Manhattan being on the board as a U.S. quote-unquote weapon uh, and is how they ultimately won the Vietnam War is not something that made the Cold War any more winnable. And it does make you wonder like okay does the Cold War come back? Like did we did we put that to bed or or where are we? All we're really seeing is Tulsa. So I'm fascinated to know where we are as a world with Dr. Manhattan not part of our galaxy or seemingly part of our galaxy but on Mars.
0: All right. Well, let's begin the process of wrapping up. And one of the things that you and I love to do or say rather when we are podcasting together Antonio, you're a man who plants flags. What flags do you have to plant here as we're wrapping up and we're looking ahead to week 2? What from the premiere really jumped out at you that you want to to make sure to put a pin in um so that we can we can back references things that you think that the audience should really be tracking?
1: Marcus Abar Angela's father, referenced only by name. If you blink and you miss it, uh, referenced by uh, Louis Gossett Jr.'s character. I would like to know what's up with Marcus Ibar. I think that that will be the connective tissue uh, between Will Reeves and between the story that's happening as we see it in Tulsa. And I think that we're going to have to fill in that blank. Uh, Damon Lindelof is famous, of course, from Lost for using flashback storytelling. It's something that he's that he's done extensively in the past, and a thing with that, that he has almost really brought into just the the use the it is now I don't see uh, a realm where we don't do some of this we start the show with a flashback to 1921 we're going to do more of that I think Marcus Ibar is going to be a key part where we do that I don't know if that's a, a way to bring Don Johnson into the story more does he only really appear in one episode my guess is no but the comedian I, I think we're certainly get-
0: was a continuing presence throughout the graphic novel so if if Don Johnson right. as Judd is occupying the same space you would hope that we would be seeing more of him
1: Definitely, definitely. And I, I, I would think that we would do that through flashbacks. How far we flashback? Will it be, as you indicated, will it be what brought Angela to Tulsa? Is there that connective tissue that goes all the way back to the events of 1921 and earlier? TBD on that for sure. But that's something I want to I wanna flag and say, I'm definitely looking out for that. Uh, what's going on with Vite? Like I said, I, I, I'm planning a flag that those servants are probably AI in some respect. It just does seem to be, uh, Adrian Veidt, the character in the graphic novel talked a lot about the technical revolution that was forthcoming and that he believed would happen Uh, he was always ahead of the curve in terms of that Uh, he was always he was able to make a lot of money uh, and we see him doing so throughout the course of Watchmen uh, by buying futures of things uh, by just in the moment uh, plotting events and seeing how he could monetize them Uh, this is a guy who I think would be fully cognizant of that he's been declared dead so clearly he's faked his death to try to take himself off the board but I do wonder Josh Because there is a key moment in the graphic novel near the end, uh, where Rorschach and Nidal are confronting Vite, and they're basically he's they're they're saying he's saying, "Do you think I would give you any chance to stop my plan?" I did it 35 minutes ago and the rug is pulled out from under you realizing this should already happened. Like they're not stopping this. The first time I read right. the graphic novel, I thought, oh my God, like they didn't stop it. It happened. Like, Which this is, is crazy.
0: Really the seminal moment from the comic book that right. has impacted so much culture, so much pop culture and so many stories since then. Very famously in the Ozymandias episode of Breaking Bad, uh, there is a, a moment that I will not spoil that all but, you know, it changes the number. It's not 35 minutes, but, Otherwise, it's basically verbatim the Adrian Vite quote. Uh, it's, right. it's still haunting to anybody who encountered that unspoiled the first time through the comic book.
1: It, it is, it is great, and the fact is that he's able to pull the rug out that way from time, uh, from a time standpoint. I'm wondering if what's if what we're seeing at the Manor. Is occurring before the events of the story that we're seeing. Uh, is he going to enter the story in a different way, time-wise, than maybe I think what we would frame it? I, I'm at least putting a button on that, if not a flag. I, I'm I'm putting I'm putting a note on the fact that it's edited to seem like it's happening at the at the same time. It may not be the same time. One of the key elements that we hear his servants talking about is it's his anniversary. Well, the anniversary of what? Is it the anniversary of when he was officially declared dead? Uh, if that's the case, then this is well after when it actually happened in the context of our story. It's not, I don't think, the anniversary of what happened in New York, unless it's after the events of our story, because the events of our story are in September. What happened in New York was in November. So I don't know what this anniversary could be, but if, if it's either of those two events from Vite's life, uh, they are not in the current timeline of the show where we are. So Oh I don't know what that could be, and so I'm planning a flag that there could be something with the time of the events that are happening at Vites, uh, at Vites Manor that does not necessarily play the way we think. And I think it would be a nice note, uh, nod to the I did it 35 minutes ago of it all. So those are the two things that really stood out to me. Uh, anything you want to plan a flag in, Josh?
0: Uh, no, I think that we've talked through a lot. I mean, I'm sure we could be here for a, a very, very long time just like talking through like Easter eggs to the point of when when Angela when Sister Knight makes it through the, you know, the, she, she makes it to the Rorschach inside the trailer and he kills himself with a cyanide pill. That in its own right is a, is a nod back to the comic book uh, where Adrian Veidt is, uh, there's an assassination attempt, but it's in quotes. And the, the killer who tries to kill Veidt uh, ends up getting killed by cyanide pill, even though it, it, it's, it's staged at the time to look like it's a suicide. Actually, Veidt is force feeding <laughs> the cyanide right. pill to the assassin, because he is just a terrifying, terrifying, genius. An intense man. Very intense man. Uh, this seemed a little bit more of the of the Rorschach's volition. The seventh cavalryman. Uh, I don't know if we want to call him a Rorschach. Uh, I don't know if that is necessarily fair to to Rorschach's legacy. But that is uh, that is that is what we've got in terms of the linger right now. I feel like we didn't spend nearly enough time on just how how cool I think uh, Tim Blake Nelson is as Looking Glass, and I think that he he may be our era. Apparent to to if you if you thought that Rorschach was a cool character encountering the comic book, like I feel like you get sort of a similar deal out of Tim Blake Nelson's uh, performance.
1: Just hearing him say the words, the shocks oh. and just you know he he knows like just his language and his dialogue and his accent. Well, the phenomenal.
0: dialogue is a delight. I mean, the, yeah. the, the the scene between him and Judd where Wade is catching Judd up. On what was found in the police car—that there was a head of lettuce that must have been thrown in—he thrown in. goes, I, "I think it was romaine." Uh, <laughs> and and Judge just like stops. and goes, "Were there any croutons?" And Wade responds to that. And he goes, "Not that I could ascertain." And it's just like it's a it's it's a it's such a great rally, right? Like it is like uh, t- it's like dialogue tennis. It's just brilliant, and the ball is up in the air so brilliantly, uh, you know, hit back and forth between these two. Great actors, uh, supplied by great writing. Damon Lindelof is uh, the sole credited writer on the pilot, but has a really great writers' room moving forward. You know, Nick Cuse is uh, the co-writer of the next episode, uh, who is a, an alumni, uh, an alumnus from The Leftovers. Is the son of Carlton Cuse, uh, has has co-written a lot of great Leftovers episodes with Damon Lindelof, Carly Rae, uh, who is uh, also from The Leftovers writer room, and is um, the writer of my favorite episode of of Westworld ever, uh, Kiktsuya, uh which was the, the the episode that was focused on Zon McLaren's character, um, so just an incredible pedigree behind it, and I, I, I have no reason to expect that the that the dialogue isn't going to be such a, a delight to to get into. So, I mean, we're one episode deep at this point. A lot of this is table setting stuff that we're doing here in this podcast. That's a little bit long, but I think that there's just so much meat on the bone that there's just no way that we're going to be chewing on it every single week, chewing on every single morsel. Good thing we've got nine weeks to do this thing, Antonio.
1: Yes. So since we're about to wrap up, I just want to do a couple quick hits here. We'll try to get into some of the Easter eggs as we talk week to week, but just a couple things from this first episode that I wanted to hit to make sure we got to before we finished. Uh, one, the song lyric conceit uh, with the summer and we're running out of ice, definitely directly from the graphic novel, uh, where there was a quote at the end of every passage. Not always a song lyric, uh, but something that was pertinent to what you just saw. Uh, was that something that you enjoyed from this episode? Well, yeah. i are looking forward to seeing how that plays I, out.
0: I love the title structure here on Watchmen uh, where it's summer and we're running out of ice is the name of the pilot and you see it hovering behind the boy at the end of the the Tulsa riot sequence and that's so cool to have that just like front and center on the show I love that big glowy yellow font uh, yeah I think is a total delight and it does feel like at the end of every chapter every issue uh, of, of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons novel you would see uh, you know the, just one little panel at the end that would have a quote in there uh, this feels uh, of, a, of a piece with that so 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 yeah, it it totally delighted me.
1: That was really cool, uh, in, in con- and also in connection to the graphic novel uh, Angela's Safe Code. When she enters uh, to, to her, her sequence to put on her costume, it's 1985. A little bit of a shout-out there uh, for sure. I thought that was really cool. Uh, we had her quote in the background of someone called Joe Jr. mounting up for the White House. Do you think this is uh, Senator Keene's son? Is that something we should be tracking?
0: Senator Keene being the person who implemented the Keene Act with uh, the the— outlawing of Mass vigilantes. Right. Yeah. I mean that would connect back to the comic books. So that would make sense to me
1: so it's just that was in the background and definitely something I, I mean if we have Redford resigning or not running anymore uh, this could be the person we see connected to the original graphic novel but maybe the son of that family and carrying that forward so definitely something I uh, I think is, is there for the show that we should probably put a flag in as possible uh, any other quick hits from your end Josh uh,
0: no there was a there's you had mentioned this to me that in the scene where you see Angela uh, walking off towards the bakery because the little bighorn flag, uh, yes. and she and she knows that she needs to, to to pound the pavement and get to work. That there is a man who is carrying a uh, who's carrying a sign. Who's, who's standing there with a sign twirling the sign around and what does it say it says uh, it says the future is bright and th- it
1: has an inverted picture of the Statue of Liberty with an X and then like three seconds later or more a little bit maybe just five seconds later we see Lewis Gossett jr's uh, headline on his newspaper that the Statue of Liberty was closed because of issues from the KKK yeah so this i mean, obviously racial issues prevalent throughout the country according to that headline but theres here's a, a sign guy with the future is bright and with the inverted Statue of Liberty, but he doesn't look like a Klansman, does he? Remind you in any way of any character from the graphic novel with his actions?
0: Well, that's, it's one of the great reveals of the graphic novel that Rorschach's secret identity is hiding in plain sight uh, for for much of the of the run before you get that reveal that he is uh, he's this, he's redheaded Walter Kovacs uh, who you see walking around with a sign, the end is nigh that he has uh, that he's parading around, and so. Th- the, the sight of anybody with a sign on this show, especially one that is basically selling a totally different message and certainly seems to have a much more optimistic viewpoint and energy about him than Walter Kovacs does as Rorschach uh, carrying the end is nigh sign um, is still going to stand out. And th- this is where you're going to start getting very conspiratorial. But I but I, I look at that guy and I can't help but wonder, like, Okay, so which massively important character are you going to wind up being? Right. Um, You know, could be nothing, could just be fun. And there is probably a lot in here that is just for fun, that is just for people like you and me and anybody else who has familiarity with Watchmen, whether it's deep familiarity or passing familiarity, but passing enough to catch some of these things, that this is just going to be fun for them, that it's just playing homage to what came before. Or is it important?
1: We don't know. We don't, we don't know. know. There are mysteries from the graphic novel still unresolved, one of them being a Hooded Justice, a character who was never revealed and sort of disappeared from the group of mass vigilantes in the 40s and 50s. It will be interesting to see, for example, if that's just a thing because we know the graphic novel we were we wonder about, or if there is some connection to the Will Reeves storyline with Hooded Justice. That's the kind of thing we're tracking. We may also be able to track those sorts of things, Josh, through something that is occurring in the background, its own animated little bit that's happening, maybe its own Black Freighter-like storyline. American Hero Story, this is a thing in this Watchmen universe? Another AHS?
0: Yes, there's another AHS. I don't think that Ryan Murphy is involved in American Horror Story or an American Hero Story in the world of Watchmen, but who knows if Robert Redford is president? Certainly that means weirder things have happened.
1: Ryan Murphy is vice president, I
0: uh, <laughs> That would be great. That would be fantastic. <laughs> uh, but you see like a trailer for it playing at, uh, at Judd's house towards the end of the episode too. And the the idea of a fiction within the fiction was so prevalent in the source material um, that it's hard to imagine that it won't be playing out in a, in, in a fun and important way moving forward. So definitely something that we should be watching.
1: Speaking of things we saw playing out at Judd's house, right before Judd left, uh, he got a call that the police officer who had been shot woke up, uh, and it is that point where he drove away from the house, hit the stop sticks that were placed there, and then seemingly was taken captive and hanged. Uh, I wonder, he had to be set up by his own people, right? Like, he, they just knew to be waiting after that call was made, or that they were just waiting for him to leave at all. It's just those stop sticks seem too convenient for me not to be a setup. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out out as well.
0: Yeah, Panda's Revenge for sure.
1: Oh my uh, gosh, Panda's Revenge. I think I had that once when I ate at, uh, at the Panda Express.
0: Oh, that sucks. That's <laughs> terrible. That bad, bad draw for you, Antonio. Yeah, my uh, bad. <laughs> but yeah, I think... Th- the idea that somebody on the police force is uh, not on the level or is uh, sympathetic to the 7th Cavalry, or has some other reason to want Judd dead, I think you ha- your head has to start swimming in that direction, given the fact that Judd is lured out of his house. He should not be leaving his house. It's late. Right. He's turning in for, for a nightcap for television. He's full of confidence, as it were. This is not a man who's planning on going anywhere. Uh, and then he leaves because he gets the call that the that the police officer who had been shot is waking up and that's not a call he's getting from anybody other than internally so who internally would be pulling him out or who would have access to somebody internally to to feed him bad info uh or is there some other way in which his home is bugged i think these are these are questions that we need to be asking for sure but i think that the smart money would be listen who watches the watchman right like that's that's the central question so let's watch let's watch the tulsa PD.
1: And that is uh, the, the quote that is repeated by the Tulsa PD at the end of their meeting, Who Watches the Watchmen? And I believe their response is, We Watch the Watchmen. Right. Or We Watch. So there you go, right there, the connective tissue between those two issues. Uh, not good. Poor Judd is dead, Josh, and it's summer, and we're running out of ice. Yes,
0: and we're running out of podcast space for this episode of Series Regular. So that's going to do it. Uh, really, really fun to be digging into all of this with you, Antonio. I'm really excited to be tracking Watchmen with you all along the way if you are excited as well dear listener please do subscribe to series regular your ratings and reviews also greatly appreciated we want to hear from you your feedback you can send it in series regular at thr.com you can also follow antonio and i on twitter antonio how do they find you
1: I am at A.C. Mazzaro with two Zs and one R.
0: I am at Round Howard. Uh, More from the Watchmen universe coming to your Hollywood Reporter podcasting uh, universe. In short order, Leslie Goldberg and Dan Feidenberg spoke with Damon Lindelof for this upcoming edition of TV's Top 5, so make sure to listen to that if you want to hear more from the creator of the Watchmen HBO series. I will have interviews uh, with, with more Watchmen cast members with people behind the scenes all of that will be up at thr.com slash watchman theory pieces all sorts of fun stuff so if you want to read more about the show definitely bookmark that page Antonio anything else
1: no that's all from me I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you here Josh I'm so excited that it's about another Damon Lindelof show and I can't wait to watch the rest of this season
0: all right well until next time TikTok,
1: everybody